Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we look for an interesting book, and we talk to the author about that book. And this week I'm very pleased to say we have Richard Rashke on the show, and we'll be talking about his book, Useful Enemies, John Demyanyuk. everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we look for an interesting book, and we talk to the author about that book. And this week I'm very pleased to say we have Richard Rashke on the show, and we'll be talking about his book, Useful Enemies, John Demyanyuk, and America's Open Door Policy for Nazi War Criminals. It's sort of funny, when I was reading this book, I should say, I knew uh, one of the people that worked for the Justice Department who looked for Nazi war criminals. This was in the um, 90, actually it was in the, it was in the knots. It was, it was, uh, I believe I met this fellow around 2002 and uh, he had been a Russian historian and they were sort of running out of material because the, uh, many of the war criminals had um, died, but he did tell me a little bit about their work. So when I saw this book, I was very interested to read it. John Demianyuk has Probably most people know he's the most, uh, well, I don't know if he's the most famous, but he's a well-known instance of the United States and Israel and uh, Germany pursuing uh, somebody who had uh, apparently committed war crimes during the war. Um, He had become a citizen of the United States. So there's a lot of interesting legal material here and historical material here, and uh, Richard does a really good job of putting it all in the proper historical context and also asking some good moral questions about the way we should act uh, in relation to these sorts of things. It's, it really is kind of complicated in many different ways, and I want to congratulate Richard for, again, doing a terrific job with what is difficult material in many ways. So, Richard, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for inviting me. Um, could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Uh, yes, I'm a very lucky man because uh, I write full-time in the morning, and in the afternoon, I play my saxophone. <laughs> so uh, I live in Washington, D.C., and I have been writing uh, ever since 1975 when I decided that I don't want to be a journalist. I was working for United uh, Press International, UPI, wire service. I found the work very, very shallow. Uh, there was no opportunity to really explore anything in depth, and I tend to be an in-depth person, and I ask a lot of questions, so I said, this is nonsense, I'm quitting, I'm going freelance, I'm going to write books. And I have been doing that since. I've also delved into stage plays, which was a form of financial suicide. Uh, I wrote six. I got them all produced, but didn't make any money. So, so after a few years of that, I said, I'm going back to my roots, and that's writing books. And uh, I live here in Washington, D.C. I'm uh, 12, 14 blocks away from the U.S. Capitol, and I have two 
resources in this city to die for. The first one is the Library of Congress, which is walking distance from my house, and the second one is the National Archives, all, you know, millions and millions of pages of primary documents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is... And I use both of those sources in writing useful enemies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that is a, that, those are both tremendous resources. As I said, I've lived in D.C., and uh, yes, you are a lucky man. So can you say a few words about some of the previous books that you've written? Yes. My first book, I have two books that are considered classics today, if I might blow my own horn. Oh, please do. The first one is Escape from Sobibor, which I published in, uh, the first one, excuse me, is The Killing of Karen Silkwood, which I published in about 1980 or so. It's been in print since 1980, and you know how hard it is to keep books in print. Not that it sells well, but it is a classic, and it is used in university-level courses on labor relations. Uh, of course, that was made into a movie with Meryl Streep and Cher. Um, we are uh, the book has now been optioned for a second movie wow. that would tell the audience what happened to uh, Silkwood, the Silkwood case after her death, and I am the designated screenwriter on that project. Congratulations! Once it goes into development, which hopefully will be soon. And I am also a producer on that project. Mm, great. The second book was Escape from Sobibor, which, uh, when it came out, was a complete, total financial flop. <laughs> I sold, I, I worked for a year and a half on it. I poured all my advance into travel and research. I went to, uh, in order to do this book about the escape from Sobibor, a death camp in eastern Poland. Uh, I traveled to uh, Poland, the Soviet Union, Israel, Brazil, and around the United States. So, poof, there goes my advance. And in hardbound, it sold 7,500 copies. For a publisher back then in the 1980s, 5,000 was the break-even point. So the publisher made some money, but I didn't. And the reason for it is that I have a tendency as a writer, to be ahead of the curve. Well, there are two bad things to do as a writer. One is to be behind the curve, and the other one is to be ahead of the curve. (laughs) If you're behind the curve, you're simply out of business. If you're ahead of the curve, maybe the audience will catch up with you someday. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? The audience for Escape from Sobibor caught up with me now, 30-some years later. We reissued the book as a as an ebook, mm-hmm. and uh, we had a terrific march. We sold close to ten thousand copies of this thing in mm-hmm. March alone. So those are the two um, really, I think, uh, ende- enduring books that I wrote. And um, okay. I think the other ones uh, are fine, but these are probably my two best. Okay. So uh, could you tell us why you wrote Useful Enemies? Yes. Uh, For a very, very unusual uh, happenstance, the publisher called me up and asked me to. (laughs) This is a writer's dream. (laughs) That is unusual. 
yeah. instead of going to New York, you know, and taking your shoe off and pounding on doors <laughs> and having secretaries say, well, the boss is out to lunch and won't return for six months, uh, you got a publisher actually courting you. So um, it happened this way. I was working on another book, and we can talk about that later, when I noticed that John Demyanyuk from Cleveland was finally, after 35 years, standing trial in Germany for aiding and abetting in the deaths of some 29,000 Jews at Sobibor. And uh, I have been called Mr. Sobibor since uh, I'm one of the experts in the world on this place. Mm -hmm. So I called the producer of the Sobibor movie. Escape from Sobibor was made into a movie in 1981. It starred uh, Alan Arkin and uh, the Dutch actor Rutger Hauer. Rutger Hauer, yeah, I remember. And it. It, did, it was a CBS three-hour movie, and it was, uh, in terms of viewership, it was one of the best movies of the year here and in Canada. So I called him up. His name is Martin Starger. I said, Martin, I think you should keep your eye on this Demiano case. He's the last one. So in, in essence, we'll be looking at the last so-called Nazi to be tried in the world. So I think there may be a movie there. He said, I think there's a book there. I said, I'm writing a book. I don't have time to, I don't want to stop writing this book. I don't have time to go around looking for a publisher. And right now I don't have an agent. I'm between agents. Um, my agents have a habit of retiring. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was the end of it. And all of a sudden, I get this phone call from Delphinium Books. It so happens that one of the owners of Delphinium Books is a friend, a New York friend of Martin Starger. And he told her about it, and she called and said, we're very interested in this. So I put together a proposal uh, in two days, and I had a contract. Yeah, that, that is an unusual story. I will tell everyone who is thinking they might want to be a writer, um, you don't hear that very often. <laughs> no, when people, sometimes when people ask me what do you do for a living, I say I'm a professional gambler. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. That that or beggar, I sometimes say, you know, because you're begging at people's doors. Yeah. So, no, you're quite right about that. So, um, let's go to the book itself. Now, just a second. Go ahead. So, I, I agreed. I agreed to do this not because I needed to do a book. I'm already writing one. I did it because I felt that the story, the John Demianyuk story, intersects some very, very important issues. And I like to deal with issues. I just don't like to tell empty stories. I like my stories to be not just about someone, but something, something valuable. And I saw John Demianyuk's story cutting through all kinds of unexplored territory. And that's what attracted me to it, and that's why I said yes. Yeah, I mean, it is a fascinating story. It's been going on my whole life, uh, which is one interesting thing about it. Um, And uh, I was in the sort of Central European and Eastern European studies community, and it was discussed, you know, Central European and Eastern European history don't really get in the press very much, except as concerns the Holocaust. 
And so, you know, we followed it, and we, we didn't really know what to think of it. It was, it was strung out over many, many, many years. So I never, okay. got, a, I never got a firm take on it. Well, one of, the, one of the important things in the John Demjanjuk story is he's not a Nazi. Yeah. He's a Nazi collaborator. Right. And uh, Eastern European Nazi collaborator, uh, historians uh, estimate that there estimate that there are probably two hundred thousand Eastern Europeans who criminally collaborated with the Nazis. The number is extremely low, but that gives you some idea. So I was interested in exploring this collaboration deal uh, because we hear so little about it. The whole focus has been, where are the Nazis? And the Nazi collaborators were slipping through the cracks, hiding, uh, disguising themselves, giving themselves false names, lying on visas, uh, taking rat lines uh, to South America where they could hide. All of these things were going on, and I was interested in exposing that. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit. I, I like the way that you begin the book. Um, and that's with, uh, well, it's it's well the 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 section of the book that uh, tells the story that John Demjanjuk himself tells about his yes. life. Can you can you give us his version of events? Yes, um, John Demjanjuk was born in the Ukraine, and uh, he suffered through uh, Stalin's forced famine, where up depending on who you talk to, anywhere from 3 to 10 million Ukrainians starved to death, were deliberately starved to death because they were uh, so anti-communist. His family survived, his immediate family survived, but all of his other relatives starved to death. This was very, very, made a deep impression on this kid, and it was, uh, it toughened him and it turned him into a survivor. He worked on a uh, collective farm, uh, first, you know, doing the normal chores, but eventually um, he was trained to to drive a tractor. And when he was uh, 18 years old, he was drafted into the Red Army, and uh, he became a war hero. He was severely injured with shrapnel, and he had to be transferred to four different hospitals. They tried to dig all the metal out of them and put them back together again. And when they did, they sent them back to the front. And in this case, the front was in Crimea. And the Russian generals made a mistake. And the Germans swooped in. And in one single day, they captured 120,000 Soviet prisoners in that area. The, the Nazis weren't prepared to handle this many prisoners. They didn't know what to do with them. So they put up some barbed wire and in uh, western Ukraine in a place called Rovno, and they penned these people in there, these prisoners in there. There were no barracks. This was in June, July of 1941. There were no barracks, and the winter is coming. So these guys began to dig trenches so they'd have a place to get out of the wind. And that winter, uh, several hundred thousand Soviet POWs froze to death or died of the dysentery or whatever. And to survive, well, you ate your buddies for breakfast. As simple as that. 
So when John Demiania got there in June of 1941, he was looking forward to the same treatment the following winter. And uh, everybody knew what they were up against. And the probability of John Demianyuk surviving would be about 20%. In other words, there was 80% probability he'd never make it. In come the Nazis, the SS. They say, okay, guys, we got a deal for you. Come and work with us. We're not going to tell you what you're going to do, but we're going to make promises and we'll keep them. Number one, you will get the same medical attention as any German soldier. Number two, you're going to get warm clothes. Three, you're going to get good food. You're going to get days off. You're going to get pocket money. You're going to get vacation time. And if something happens to you and you get killed working with us, your family will receive a pension. Anybody want to come? Now, in some cases, they just drafted people. In other cases, they asked, do you want to? If, you, if they picked you to go you, and you didn't want to go, well, you had to face a choice. What will happen to me if I say no? Probably, you'd get killed. So people went. Uh, John Demianyuk probably volunteered. If he, if he could have, if he was a truck driver, and I think he was, then they would have said, anybody here know how to drive a truck, a mechanic, whatever, and if you put up your hand, you were highly valued. So he volunteered, and they took him to a camp uh, in eastern Poland called Travniki, and it was a training camp for a new concept, SS guards. You didn't join the SS. You worked for the SS, under the SS, according to its rules and regulations, and subject to SS court-martial if you broke the rules. And in the camp, you, you, you were taught how to fire uh, Soviet weapons. You were taught how to round up people. And in some cases, you were instructed to one-on-one uh, -on -one shoot a Jew in the head. Uh, sometimes you were sent out on roundups, and on some of these roundups, it was shoot to kill. Uh, there was no graduation ceremony or anything. Uh, the Nazis didn't trust these, these Ukrainians mostly, but the Eastern Europeans who were being trained, so they took the weapons back at night so they wouldn't uh, use them to escape. And at some point, they, they decided your training is completed. Now, they didn't say, uh, where do you want to work? They simply drafted you. And they drafted John Demyanyuk to go to Sobibor, which was about... Um, maybe 15 or 20 clicks down the road. And uh, he had no choice, and he got to the camp, and once he got to the camp, he couldn't pick and choose what he was, what functions he would serve. There were a number of things he had to do at the camp. Some were quite simple. Help or force people out of boxcars. Frequently that involved rifle budding. Uh, supervising the detainees as they were uh, getting ready to go to the gas chamber so there would not be a riot, uh, assisting them into the gas chamber, and if needs be, forcing them in or bayoneting them in, whatever. Uh, they were also asked to assist the SS in murdering uh, 
um, the elderly and the sick. It was too difficult to get them into the gas chamber. It was too much of a hassle, so they just shot them. And, uh, that, and also serve in a guard tower. Those were the, his, the basic jobs of a guard at Sobibor. Now, Demyanyuk said that he never went to Sobibor. He said that he went to another camp, uh, Helm, nearby, which he probably did. And from there, he said he, he worked in a, in a peat bog uh, for a while. And then he said he was sent to join an all-Ukrainian armed unit to fight alongside the Germans. That was his story. And after the war, he was at uh, one of these camps uh, serving in, uh, they call it the Waffen-SS. Waffen means the armed SS. And uh, he was captured there, and, and he went to uh, a DP camp. That's his story. So, um, and, then, and, then, and then he says he, uh, the rest of it is that he immigrates to the United States after the yeah, United States he, basically he, he, agrees well, to accept. Yeah. Yeah. The war was over in '45. And Demyanyuk was a survivor. He drove truck for uh, the United States Army and was paid in cigarettes. On the cigarettes, he bartered for food and clothing. He married someone at a camp and uh, came to the United States in 1951, six years after the war, with a daughter. Uh, in those days... To get to the United States, you you had to, uh, if you were a guy like John Demyanyuk, you had to lie on your visa. If he said on his visa, oh, application, by the way, during the war, I served as a guard in a Nazi death camp, he'd never get in. Um, he would be excluded immediately. Uh, if he said he had been a POW, that that's not a black mark against him. He could be admitted. But in those days, no one wanted to admit they were a POW because they were, they were worried about forcefully being repatriated to the Soviet Union. They were afraid that the United States would send them back home, which in most cases was either to a salt mine or a hangman's noose. Mm -hmm. So you wouldn't say you were a POW. That's not against you. And also, if you were smart, you lied about where you were born. Because if he said he was born in the Ukraine, Soviet officials can come around and look at all the lists and say, where are the Ukrainians? We want them back. So he lied and said he was born in Poland. That way the Soviets couldn't grab him. So he lied, and he came to the United States because he had a sponsor. Immigration law back then favored Eastern Europeans. Why? because they were anti-communist. They were fugitives from communism. They didn't want to go back home for a lot of reasons, one of which they treasured their religious freedom. And the United States was built on the concept of religious freedom. And uh, so many immigrants came to America in order to practice their religions. Um, so it favored Eastern Europeans and farmers. So Demyanyuk used to be a farmer, and he was sponsored by a farmer in Indiana. And he went there, and uh, 
probably castrated pigs for a living. It was very, very lonely, very depressing. And he made friends with uh, people in the next farm, immigrants in the next farm, and they found out that he was a mechanic. So they got him a job in town, Decatur, Indiana. And uh, while well, he was working on cars, and his friends, other friends, managed to get to Cleveland and got a job with the Ford Motor Company there. They contacted Demyanyuk and said, you're a mechanic, we can get you a job here, a really good job. Come on to Cleveland, and he did, and he got the job. And like every immigrant family, forever an A, he started off everybody living in one room and eventually uh, bought a fixer-upper. And by the time he retired, he had a very, very nice suburban home with a huge garden to retire to. Mm-hmm. And as in all these cases, well, in many of these cases, uh, his neighbors report that he was a, a very good fellow. Uh, yes. You'll find, Nami studied uh, probably 10 or 12 uh, former Nazi and Nazi collaborators living in America. They had two things in common. One is they were very, very quiet, good neighbors, very quiet, and they were all church goers and the pillars of their church catholics frequently went to mass every single day they were on school boards pta they were on parish councils they were not necessarily the pillars of the community but they were certainly uh, deeply involved in their communities because of their children mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. and this is what happened to dimyanyuk he was on the parish board he was on the pta he was a mover and shaker in, in building, uh, uh, structuring classes in Ukrainian language and literature and dance and music. So he was, um, he was well, well liked. And people could not believe that a man as sweet and gentle and generous as John Demyanyuk was in Cleveland he was a war criminal. Mm-hmm. So how did he first uh, come to the attention of the authorities and which authorities? Well, I go deeply into this question. You know, I'll, let me rephrase. When I begin a book, I begin with a question. And the question is my compass. Uh, it takes a long time before I can formulate that question because to a certain extent it's going to determine the direction in which I'm going to go. In the case of John Demyanyuk, it was quite simple. Why did it take over 60 years to bring this guy, an alleged Nazi war criminal, to face a judge in Germany? That's the most frequently asked question about Demyanyuk. And secondly, why did it take 35 years to chase him through the courts? What was going on? And when I, when I began to explore that, I found out, uh, and I'm not going to go deeply into this right now unless you want me to, but I found out that the United States was resisting, finding, and trying for visa fraud and expelling Nazis hiding in America. We, the government, the FBI, the CIA, the State Department, the White House, the military complex, all knew who these people were and basically where they were, but they kept the lid on it. And any time somebody tried to get one of them, 
there was resistance, not necessarily, I don't use the word conspiracy, I say resistance. And thus it was that the first Nazi, uh, that Nazi collaborator that appeared on the American scene was in 1964. Now that's almost 20 years after the war was over. And it was a woman, and she was an Austrian, and she was a nasty. And uh, her name came up because Simon Wiesenthal learned about her from survivors of the death camp, of the, the Nazi camp she was in, called Majdanek. Majdanek was like Auschwitz. It was an, a multi-purpose camp. It had gas chambers, it was a concentration camp, and it was a work camp. And this woman, Hermine Braunsteiner, was the... Um, commandant of the women and children section and the inmates had a name for her they called her the Stutter von Majdanek uh, the mayor from Majdanek because she, her, her uh, MO was to stomp women and children to death with her steel studded boots so um, Wiesenthal found, found her living in Queens and Wiesenthal was a sharp guy. He didn't, he didn't even bother to go to the uh, Immigration Naturalization Service, INS, because he knew from experience they would sit on it. They wouldn't do a thing. So he gave the story to the New York Times. Boom. People in America said, what? A Nazi war criminal hiding in Queens? What's going on here? And uh, as a result the INS was embarrassed to open the case. So uh, eventually it did, and uh, it took uh, 10 years before she was finally convicted of visa fraud and sent to Germany to stand trial for war crimes. She was uh, convicted and given a life sentence. So once Hermine Braunsteiner, the first one to be uh, dispelled or deported from the United States, uh, when, when that news broke, whistleblowers came out of the woodwork. And the Soviet Union was watching, Moscow was watching this trial very carefully, and it saw that maybe the United States is finally willing to do something about the Nazis we know are hiding there. So Moscow got a hold of Amer an American journalist, uh, a, a Ukrainian, born here in the United States, who spoke Ukrainian. He was a member of the Communist Party. The FBI had 1,000 pages on him, which I got, by the way, and read. Um, they got a hold of him, and they provided him with a list of 70 Ukrainians living in the United States whom... Moscow considered war criminals. It gave names, it gave where they served the Nazis, and in some cases uh, listed some of the war crimes they committed. That list was made available uh, to uh, Congress. J uh, Senator Javits, who was Jewish, got a hold of it, and he finally got the attention of INS and INS decided to do something. On that list of 70 was John Demyanyuk. So INS selected nine names that looked 
rather easy to investigate, sent them to Israel and asked for Israeli police assistance in finding eyewitnesses. And that's how the John Demyanya case got started. Mm-hmm. It was Moscow who started it, and it was Moscow who gave the evidence to our Nazi hunting team here called OSI, um, which is uh, founded in 1979, and they provided the physical evidence and identification card that uh, our prosecutors used to um, expel John Demyanyuk. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I thought, uh, maybe I'm, I'm misremembering, but I thought he was actually contacted by German authorities in the mid-70s to serve as a witness. Well, yes, he was, but that but the, never what came officially. N- nothing official. Uh-huh. He, um, he was visited by uh, some embassy, German embassy people, who asked him whether he would be willing to testify in some trial. So Germany probably got that same card. Mm-hmm. It was published in the newspaper. Mm-hmm. So the identification card, I mean, the, the Soviets played the media. Mm-hmm. They got the identification card printed in several newspapers, and that's probably how the Germans found out about it. Mm-hmm. And then what so, is that I... was, so that was the irony of it, right. that... that we didn't find him. The, the Moscow gave him to us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And why wasn't he? Uh, you know, why wasn't he? I mean, there were lots of investigations by the Soviets and the Americans, the American denazification program. So why didn't? Why did? How did he fall through the that dragnet? Uh, well, uh, I know that's a difficult question. I, I don't question. understand your question. Try it again. Well, in other words, if the Soviets had information that he had worked, that he had been processed through Travniki, or that he had worked at Sobibor in 1945, which they certainly did, right. why didn't they bring him to, why didn't they try to capture him? Why didn't okay. they bring the him first, to justice? The first yeah. thing is this. The, the Soviets knew about John Demyanyuk, that he had been a guard in Sobibor, since the early 1950s. They knew where he was living in the United States. Why? Because he wrote letters to his mother, mm-hmm. and he sent packages, and uh, even sent some photographs. They knew, but they, they sensed that the United States was not interested in pursuing the Nazis hiding in America. So they sat back, and all of a sudden, they saw Hermine Braunsteiner was tried, found guilty, expelled to Germany to stand trial. So they said, well, if they were willing to expel Braunsteiner, maybe the United States will expel John Demyanyuk and give him to us so we can hang him. Mm-hmm. Now, that's the first reason. The second reason is even more important. In 1975, roughly, that's what we're talking about now, when the Ukrainian list was made available, um, in 1975, Soviets and Jews in Ukraine were starting to work together. They were starting to work together to fight the oppressive laws, and to agitate for an independent Ukraine. The Soviets were not happy with that. Furthermore, the Soviets had a huge public relations problem that every nation in the world knew about. They were severely discriminating against the Jews living in the Soviet Union and wouldn't let them out. Mm -hmm. If you applied for a visa or you tried to get out, you were severely punished. It was a huge problem. 
So to distract the world from its problem, it decided to drive a wedge between Ukrainians and Jews and put them like two scorpions in a jar and let them go at each other. And the way to do that would be to start to find, try, expose Eastern European Nazi collaborators. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And it worked like it, it was a brilliant strategy, and it worked. You had the two extremes where Jews would say there is no such thing as an innocent Ukrainian, and Ukrainians would say all Jews are communists. Mm-hmm. And they were at each other all over the world, not just in the United States. So the strategy worked. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when did he first come to the attention of INS? When does INS first contact him? Uh, 19, uh, it was 1978, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and, and they, they, they issued a, a bill of uh, charges against him, and of course the trial was three years later in 81, because it takes time for depositions and collect evidence, etc. Mm-hmm. So he was tried in Cleveland in 1981, and uh, uh, there were no eyewitnesses. This is the interesting thing. Um, if I might, every camp that I know of has a monster, a someone that everyone remembers. In in uh, Maidanic, it was Hermine Brownsteiner, the mayor, the stomper. Uh, in Treblinka, it was Ivan the Terrible. It uh, in Sobibor, it was a, a Austrian SS officer by the name of Gustav Wagner. Mean, mean, terrible people. People remember someone who's exceptionally mean. Survivors remember them. They're they're, they're seared in their memory. They can't get rid of the images and the fear. Uh, No one remembers John Demyanyuk. There were approximately, I know when I did my book, I interviewed 19 of them. Uh, I'm pretty sure there's something like 35 or so around the world. Um, using my book as a guide to a certain extent, um, prosecutors and historians and interviewers for the Justice Department found him, and they showed pictures of Demyanyuk. They mentioned his name. No one could identify this man. So what does it tell you? One, he wasn't there, or two, he was there, but he never was. He never stood out. He was not an exceptionally mean person. Now, so the survivors would only see what what uh, happened in the main courtyard. They don't know what ha- what happened behind the gem- uh, the camouflage fence, where the when they drove the naked Jews to the gas chamber. They don't know what a man like Demyanyuk had to do uh, once the the prisoners were about to enter the gas chamber. So they couldn't comment on that. But in general, he was not perceived as a mean person. Now, there was one eyewitness that was never called to the trial. Um, the, the reason the people were, uh, the prisoners could escape from Sobibor was because there was a contingent of Russian Jewish soldiers who came to Sobibor uh, in September of 1943. Their camp 
the camp they were supposed to go to, Treblinka, was already closed. A neighboring camp, Belshitz Death Camp, was also closed. The next one to be closed and the last one to be closed was Sobibor. They arrived in September. Most of them had experience escaping from camps. That's how long, that's why they lasted this long. And the first thing they did when they got there is they looked around and said, let's figure out how we can get out of here. And they developed an escape plan. And one of these Russian soldiers who was part of the escape plan remembers John Demyanyuk very, very clearly. He didn't know his name, but he recognized his photo immediately. He saw him marching uh, a contingent or guarding a contingent of workers, a commando called Vald Commando, the wood, the woods uh, unit, go out into the forest to cut wood for firewood for the winter time, and he saw him marching out several times. He and he remembered his face. By the time prosecutors in Germany found him, the guy was 90 years old. He was lucid. He was clear, but they felt he would be a weak witness because. Hey, why didn't he come forward sooner? And uh, they couldn't get around that, so they never called him. But other than that, John Demyanyuk was basically convicted on a card provided by the Soviets. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that card because it's um, it is a it is a constant in all of Demyanyuk's uh, legal affairs, and it's never, it's as far as I can tell from reading your book, uh, it, it is not clear what exactly that card is, even to this day. Um, because it is, it's a strange document. But what the, I guess one of the things I was interested in is at the time of the INS hearing in 1970... Uh, they, was plot, it? They, they charged him in 1978. 1978, they didn't even have the original of the card. They had a photocopy. Yeah, that's right. They had a photocopy, and the photocopy was certified if you want to trust the Soviets. Yeah. Now, let's face it. The Soviets were the best forgers in the world. They had a whole unit where they did nothing but forge. They forged letters, documents, whatever they wanted. They were really, really good at it. So one can rightfully ask, are you sure this is an authentic document? Are you sure this wasn't forged? Well, there were a lot of flaws on that card. There were spots on it. They used seven, eight different kinds of ink. There were more than one type of press printing on it. Uh, The picture uh, had been removed from the card and pasted back on again. Uh, There was writing uh, in purple ink uh, all over the card, which was a translation made by uh, the Soviets from German into Uh, Russian, so they could be understood. Uh, And, above all, no one had ever seen a card similar to this one. So, there were uh, other things on the card that um, some German witnesses said, this is very unusual, we think it's forged. So, the United States did the prudent thing. It, it, It got experts to have a look at the card. And they well, first, well, just to interrupt, to have a look at the, fo- the, the, the photocopy of the card. Well, they had the photocopy. Yeah. When the trial started in yeah. Cleveland, all they had was a photocopy. Mm-hmm. 
and that was examined by an expert, and what he focused on were the signatures. And he had, uh, there, were, there were three signatures on the card, and there was the commandant, there was the uh, uh, officer, uh, the desk officer who issued these, and then there was John Demyanyuk. And they had, the uh, examiner had authentic signatures, proven signatures of all three of these. So then he could examine the, the signatures on the card against the proven given signatures. And he concluded the signatures were not forged. They were all accurate. And then, before the trial was over in Cleveland, the Soviets finally delivered the original card. So the uh, document expert had a chance to look at that, and he did not change his conclusion. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem here, all along with John Demyanyuk, is he never got a proper defense. The, uh, his defense attorney in Cleveland didn't even come up with an expert to look at the card. He just stood there and said, this card is a forgery. And the judge slammed him and put him in his How can you say that? You can't say that in my courtroom because you have no evidence. And they put him in his place. So the card was never examined by uh, the defense, and therefore the only thing the judge had to go on was the prosecution's examination, and he bought it. He said the card's authentic. And that's the only evidence. And there was some concern early on whether the judge, a judge, would actually allow this card to be admitted because it came from the Soviets, but this judge allowed it to be admitted. So based on that, uh, he was uh, stripped of his citizenship, lost his appeal, appeared at immigration court uh, for deportation. It was a hearing, and the judge gave him a choice. Uh, should you be found deportable, Mr. Demyanyuk, to which country would you like to be deported? And Demyanyuk did not choose. He said, I'm not choosing because I am not guilty, and I'm not going to honor this court by saying, oh, well, I'd like to go here or there, because why should I admit to something, even indirectly, that I didn't do? So, uh, by court regulation, if the uh, accused doesn't choose, the government chooses for him, and the government chose the Soviet Union. And he was found deportable. The judge gave Demyanyuk an out. He said, I give you 60 days to find a country that will accept you should you choose to look for another country. If you don't, you're going to the Soviet Union. And under his breath, he said, I know you're going to be hung. I can't help it. That's where you're going. That's your country. So before he could go to uh, Soviet Union, where he would most certainly have been executed, either a firing squad or be hung to death, uh, Israel asked for him. And they asked for him not because he was accused of being a guard at Sobibor, but that's the bottom of, of the that's the, bad, the bottom of the totem pole to be a guard at a camp. Uh, he uh, 
he was accused of being Ivan the Terrible of Treblinka, based on eyewitness testimony. And so he was, uh, Israel thought he was big enough to try him. And so he went there. And of course, we know that he wasn't Ivan the Terrible. We know that the Israeli Supreme Court committed an act of courage against all the emotion which was running high in the country and said he was not Ivan the Terrible. Mm -hmm. So the United States kicks him out because of a visa violation, and they suspect that he was some sort of Nazi war criminal. Correct. I need to to make something very clear here. The United States had a chance to um, convict war criminals. In a military court, after the war, Nuremberg. Once Nuremberg shut down, the military court shut down. Now all we have left is civilian court. United States has no jurisdiction to try a war criminal who committed his crimes in Europe. He's not an American, and uh, uh, we simply don't have jurisdiction. What we can do, however, is expel, deport, or extradite anyone who lied on his visa application Mm -hmm. in a material way. Now, I don't want to get legal here, but it's important for me to explain material lie. If you tell a lie, or if you told the truth, and that truth would convince a a vice consul not to grant you a visa, then that lie is a material lie. Mm-hmm. John Demaniuk lied that, about being a guard at Sobibor. Had he told the truth, he would not be granted a visa. So, according to immigration law, if you tell this kind of lie, you acquired your visa uh, fraudulently and therefore it can be taken away. Mm -hmm. So you're stripped of your U.S. citizenship. Mm -hmm. And in most cases, you know, you pick the country you want to go to. Mm -hmm. And so the the United States kicks him out in this visa allegation, and then he goes to to Israel where he's brought up on charges, and the theory of the case is that he's Ivan Grozny and Ivan the Terrible. Where where did this notion come from? Where did this identity come from? Who, Who thought that he was Ivan the Terrible? Well... Let me, go, let me go backwards. There was a conspiracy here, clearly. Uh, Poland knew that he was not Ivan the Terrible. They knew from documents they have in their own files that the real Ivan the Terrible was Ivan Marshenko, a Ukrainian. The Soviets knew that he was not uh, Ivan the Terrible, that Marshenko was Ivan the Terrible. They had it in a whole stack of documents. Eyewitnesses from Treblinka uh, under interrogation said, yeah, this guy here, he ran the gas chambers as Ivan Marshenko by name, independently, one after the other. The United States had this same information in its files but uh, and had doubts whether um, Demyanyuk was Ivan the Terrible or not. But they chose to try him as Ivan the Terrible, and that's what he was convicted of. Now, the irony of this whole case is 
that by going to German, going to Israel, being convicted of uh, being Ivan the Terrible, an atrocious monster. I, you know, if anybody uh, listening to this is going to read my book, get a box of Kleenex because in some of these cases, you, you know, you're going to have tears in your eyes. But it's important to know who we're dealing with, so I write about it. Um, and the irony is that he was convicted and he was ready to be hung, like uh, Israeli law says. Anyone who's uh, convicted of a, a sentence to capital punishment, his case or her case has to be reviewed by the Supreme Court. So what is interesting is it was the Israeli trial that saved his life. Because if he hadn't been extradited to Israel to stand trial as Ivan the Terrible, he would have gone to the Soviet Union and would have been killed. Mm-hmm. So Israel, who put him on trial and convicted him and, and sentenced him to the gallows, actually saved his life. Mm-hmm. The Israelis themselves, though, the Israeli prosecution, they had evidence that he wasn't the person that they were claiming he was. Is that right? Yes, we had it. Uh, now, the question here is, it was in the file. The question is, did the team that prosecuted Jan Demyanyuk, did they know that this uh, Marshenko character was in the file and that these documents cast serious doubt as to whether John Demyanyuk was Ivan the Terrible or not. Did they know that? Did they actually read these papers? Uh, when Demyanyuk came back to the United States after he was found innocent in Israel, uh, innocent to a certain extent. The three judges who um, uh, exonerated him said there's still the issue of Sobibor, and that if the prosecutors in Israel want to prosecute him uh, as a guard at Sobibor, we will entertain that. But they decided not to do it. The prosecutors decided to drop the Sobibor case. So he came back to the United States. The first thing he did his family did, was to file an appeal to the appeals court that uh, uh, upheld the decision to send him to Israel. Uh, An appeal on the grounds of fraud on the court and prosecutorial misconduct. So, So in appeals court... Um, the judges do not do investigations. So they appointed a, a judge. In this case, it was a judge in Tennessee to do all the interviewing of all the characters involved in this case, all the prosecutors, look at all of the witnesses, look at all of the evidence, um, and reach a conclusion. And the special master, as he's called, concluded that it was a case of the right hand not knowing what the left hand was doing. They didn't commit prosecutorial conduct uh, because they didn't all know about this exculpatory uh, series of documents that would have probably um, reversed the decision of of the court and probably would have urged them not 
to try him as Ivan the Terrible. They didn't know about it, he was saying, and therefore they can't be guilty. So uh, it's a recommendation, not a decision. So he recommended nothing. It went back to the three-panel appeals court, and the appeals court unanimously ruled it was prosecutorial misconduct and fraud upon the court, that they either knew it or they were grossly negligent by not knowing it, or they knew it but didn't put the dots together, and that made them culpable. Now, back then, in 1993, there was no penalty for prosecutorial misconduct or fraud upon the court. Can you believe it? The only thing that could happen is that you could be disbarred. So the American Bar Association um, reviewed it, and they played the role of the Supreme Court, and they overturned the decision of the appeals court and said, no prosecutorial misconduct or fraud, the lawyers are free. And, of course, the John Demianuk family was jumping for joy at that. How can this be? They lied. They cheated. They hid evidence. And they're getting off with it. Getting off free. So. And then uh, he's deported again. Pardon? And then he's deported again. Yes. So then, <laughs> we no, that would be the end so of it. The, but That's 1993. Yeah. Now, um, the OSI, which is our Nazi hunter unit, had a choice. He now has his citizenship back. Should we do what Israel did? declined to prosecute him for being, lying about being a guard at Sobibor. And OSI decided, no, but the card isn't enough. We need to look for more evidence. Well, while John Demianyuk was being tried in Israel, the Nazis opened up their archives to uh, professionals, to uh, law enforcement people, historians, archivists, etc. And the archives, by and large, in the Soviet Union and all the keys, uh, like, like Kiev and uh, what else, you know, Moscow, they were all in, in disarray. They, they were not filed properly, etc., so they were a mess. So American historians, by and trilingual historians, went to the archives looking for any documents that would support this Travniki card and prove that it was authentic. And they found five or six. The Travniki card that was issued to John Demianyuk had a number. The Nazis didn't care much about the name. Everybody had a number. And they were tracked generally not by name, but by number. So uh, I believe John Demanik was something like 1603, and they found documents that a man uh, called more or less John Demyanyuk. It's very difficult to, for a German to spell these names correctly because there, there's just so many, um, so many uh, syllables in them and so many consonants, it's hard to do phonetically. So they frequently misspelled his name. But the number was there, and they found out, they found documents saying he was at Maidanic. 
serving with you know who Hermine Brownsteiner, the the mayor of Maidanek. And they know that because he played hooky one day. The place was quarantined. Nobody was allowed out because of typhus. He and a couple other guards snuck out, went in, went shopping in Lublin. When he got back, he got caught, and they gave him 20 whacks with a stick. Then we found out uh, that there were documents showing that he was then sent after Tovniki was closed. When the Russians came, everybody ran further and in, deeper into Germany, and he was assigned to another camp, and there were several documents saying on such and such a day, you know, he worked, he guarded such and such a detail, and on such and such a day, he was given a rifle, and the rifle, uh, you know, uh, serial number was such and such. So with all that supporting evidence, a second trial uh, was held in Cleveland, and hands down, I mean, the the defense didn't even call a witness. I mean, there, there was nothing, to, what can you say against that? It, it was so tight, and all these documents were so interlinked. As the judge said, it would be impossible for these things to be forged. They were found in five different places. There's no conspiracy here. The man was there. So when he got on trial in Germany, once again, this, this card and the supporting documents did him in. I mean, there's no way he could get around it. You could argue this one was forged, but you, you, you could, they couldn't prove a thing on any of these documents. Now, in Israel, they did have one really, really important witness who said John Demyanyuk's signature was forged. He's a big gun. He's the guy that exposed the Hitler diaries as a fraud. But he was an ink expert not a signature expert. Mm -hmm. And so he was not considered, his, his testimony about the validity of the signature was totally dismissed by the court because he wasn't an expert. So that's how he got convicted. And um, uh, in my opinion, I mean, he was guilty. He was guilty. He was there. He, he, yeah, he was there. He was at Sobibor and, and Majanic yeah. and these other places, yes. Yeah, now, it, uh, there's no evidence that he killed anyone personally. He may have. Who knows? But there's no evidence to that effect. Mm -hmm. Therefore, he could only be convicted of aiding and abetting. He's like the guy, the bank robbery goes on, the bad guys enter the bank, they kill somebody, they come out, jump in the car, they have a special driver. Well, the driver of the car is also guilty of the murder. He assisted, aided, and abetted in the crime. So John Demianyuk, um assisted the Nazis in, in, in killing, in the time he was there, 29,060. Mm -hmm. All Jews, mostly Dutch Jews. Mm -hmm. So in, two, in 2011... Uh, after he's been extradited to Germany, he's convicted of, of what? Aiding and abetting. Aiding and abetting, yes. Uh -huh. Yes. Now, what you need to understand here is the German law dealing with this kind of a crime dates back to the 1880s. It was never revised after World War II to accommodate a new type of crime crimes against humanity. France revised its code. 
Holland revised its code, Belgium revised its code, uh, and Israel revised its code to accommodate this. Germany did not. The result was that uh, a dozen or so uh, SS guards from Sobibor were put on trial in Hagen, Germany. I believe the year was 1965. And eyewitnesses were called in, and four of them were acquitted. Why? Because the German law of 1860 or 1880 said that uh, if you didn't specifically kill somebody, then uh, you, you can't be tried under our law, under our legal system. You're not guilty. So there were hundreds and hundreds of names in Israeli prosecutor file cabinets of collaborators at Nazi death camps. But there was no evidence that they physically killed somebody, and therefore they could not be convicted under German law. So when the court accepted to hear this case, they were confronted with, do we want to set a precedent here or not? Do we want to commit an act of courage and reverse all of the German legal history dealing with World War II uh, alleged war criminals? And they did. Mm -hmm. They set a precedent. The result is that right now German prosecutors are looking at 50 cases that they think they might open. Yes, they did all in a file cabinet, but they couldn't do anything. Now they can, but guess what? It's kind of late, isn't it? Most of these people, uh, alleged criminals, are in the late uh, 80s, early 90s. You can't put a case together and try it and appeal it in, in a year or two. So they will, if, if they ever get to court, uh, they probably will do a John Demjanjuk. He'll mm -hmm. probably die before the legal process is completed. Right, and so Demjanjuk is, is scheduled, I mean, he's uh, uh, sentenced to five years, and the sentence is suspended because he'd already sat in Israeli jail for a while, and he sat in no, a German no, jail. No, no, what happened is, normally, normally uh, in Israel, in Germany, in France, for the kinds of crime that John Demjanjuk is accused of or found guilty of aiding and abetting, he would get a maximum of 15 years, probably 10. Even at Nuremberg, we had people who were convicted of such crimes, and they got five years. So what the court did is it took in consideration that he was on death row in Israel for five years. Mm -hmm and only gave him five years as a prison sentence. I see, yeah. Now, it didn't commute it. What it said is, you're a sick man. You pose no risk of flight, so we're not going to put you in jail. We're going to let you go to a nursing home where you'll get proper daily care. We're not worried about you escaping. Uh, so I think that the sentence was just, but it was unfair. It was unfair because these other guys got off, and they mm -hmm. were his bosses. Yeah. So it's not wasn't fair. But who said justice is always fair? You know, so it it, uh, it was it was a just uh, conviction, and the sentencing was just. And I talked to several survivors, and they all agreed. We don't care. You only got five years. That's not the point, is it? 
The point is that he faced the judge, and the whole world knows what he did, and we feel vindicated for our families. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess one question that occurs to me, and we're, out, we're completely out of time, but, and I want to ask you what you're working on now, but one question that occurs to me is, I, I guess there's something inside me that says we don't really know what he did. We know where he was. We know what people like him did, but we don't know what he did. Correct. If you want to use the neighboring camp, Treblinka, as, as a model, as typical, then it's typical that those who usher or uh, bring the, those to be gassed into the gas area, into that part of the camp, uh, they use brutal force. Because once people know what's going to happen, they panic. They want to run. They don't want to go in. How are you going to get them in there if they, they don't want to go in? So you use your bayonet or whatever it is. You push, mm-hmm. you shove, you kick, and you use your bayonet, whatever it takes, to stuff them into the gas chamber. That's what went on at Treblinka. So guards rotated. Not everybody worked uh, at the gas chamber area in that part of the camp every single day. But almost everybody at the camp was assigned at one point or another to that kind of duty. So if that's going to be your model, then you would say more than likely John Demyanyuk did what everybody mm-hmm. else did. Yeah, I mean, I would agree, I would agree with that. But, but, yeah. but the law is not based on assumptions. Right. You, there's no eyewitness. So he couldn't, uh, he, he couldn't be convicted uh, of that particular brutal crime. So, yeah, I, I don't know what he did. I, I would think that uh, uh, he went out on raids. I know that. In other words, while he was there, they were still trying to pull together the last remaining Jews yeah. in, uh, in Poland, mm-hmm. and he would go out on raids. Yeah, these are the so-called Jew hunts. Yeah. Yeah. And um, uh, yeah. I believe, I believe he, he knew how to drive. Mm-hmm. So I would suspect that he went out on these hunts, and he drove. Yeah, I, and I guess, while on these hunts, you're, you you must be brutal. You can't yeah. get these people into into a truck. I mean, they they fight back, and uh, and sometimes you simply have to kill them. So I would suspect that he probably did. But let me let me go one step backward in in terms of John Demyanyuk's mind. He always said he wasn't guilty. What he was saying is. I was a victim. He was. I did what I had to do to survive. He did. If that meant killing people, then he probably did it. He worked at a death camp and assisted as part of the killing process, as they say. And, but in his mind, he did nothing wrong. Mm-hmm. In his mind, he didn't do it. This is what you had to do to survive. I survived. I didn't do anything wrong, and therefore I am not guilty of a crime. Mm-hmm. And here's where you have to fault John Demyanyuk. He could have walked away almost any day of the week. Of the 5,000 guards, like Demyanyuk, SS guards at the camp, 20% tried to escape. Not all succeeded. Some were brought back and, and executed, court-martialed, and shot to death. If they resisted uh, with arms, if they came back without resisting 
with with arms. They got a week or two in the brig, and they went back to work. John Demianyuk made no attempt to just disappear in the woods and join a group of Ukrainian partisans who were in the woods waiting for the war to end. He didn't do it. In fact, we all know that from the beginning of time, in any army, any place in the world, one of the duties of a soldier, if captured, is to try to escape. And he didn't do it. So there he, he could very, very definitely can be faulted. Mm-hmm. And it was not an act of heroism to step away, to, to just fade into the woods. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was a duty, and it was not an act of heroism. No one is expected to be a hero. It's not part of our morality. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess another thing that occurs to me is that his story tells us a lot about Eastern Europe in this period, because starting in about, well, the mid-20s, um, he had very poor prospects and never really had a good choice. At every moment, he was given what were basically dilemmas. You know, there was never a clearly moral good thing to do. No, and, well, and, I, he, and he got trapped in this situation. Well, as I say in the beginning of my book, two things. First, uh, I quote an anonymous source saying, uh, history, like life, is messy. It's not always clear motives, choices. It's messy. And secondly, I make a big point of saying that the first casualty of war is not the truth. It's morality. You are confronted with choices, life and death choices that you never face anywhere else. And you have to cho- you you must choose. And it's not easy to uh, so that's why I become a bit of a moral philosopher at one point in my book when I do what no one else has ever done before. I define the word uh collaborator and I dissect it and find levels and degrees of collaboration. And at each point, I ask the question, okay, you are a secretary working uh, with the Nazis, uh, for the Nazis, for pay. Uh, Are you a collaborator? Well, what if you're working in a Gestapo office? Are you a collaborator? What if what you're typing is a list of, of Jews to be rounded up the next day and sent to a death camp. Are you a collaborator? If you live in the village of Dachau and you're ordered by the Nazis to spit upon the the prisoners marching to the camp, where you have to march from the train station through the village, and jeer at them and call them dirty Jews or whatever, uh, if you do that, are you a collaborator? If you don't do it, you may lose your job and maybe not get any food for your family. Are you a collaborator? There's a story I tell, which is based on a, an account, uh, eyewitness account of a German officer. He was driving down the street, and there's a square, and he noticed a big group of people, and they were all cheering. He stopped and went over to see what was going on. This is in Lithuania. He saw a man, young man, with a... Uh, a post with the thickness of his arm. And he was clubbing 
Jews to death. They would line up. One would step forward. He'd club them to death, wash the blood away. Another would come up, club that one. And the crowd would cheer every time one of these Jews went down. And mothers were holding their babies up to watch this thing. Mm-hmm. And when he was finished, and everyone was dead, he climbed on, he washed his hands, picked up his accordion, climbed on top of the dead bodies, he played the national anthem, and everybody sang their hearts out. Is that collaboration? Mm-hmm. Is it collaboration if uh, you sit by and you watch your neighbors being dragged off, and then you go into their houses and steal their goods? You're trying to survive. You want their food. You want their money. You need to make it through through the war. Is that collaboration? So I ask all these very, very delicate questions as some kind of a moral philosopher, and I drive you and anybody else who reads my book absolutely crazy because I never give you an answer. Yeah, and I don't know either. I mean, there are lots and yeah. lots of... Uh, and Eastern European history is full of these things. Um, well, what we found out... and Well... As they say, history repeats itself. There's nothing new here. Uh, once World War II started, and there's a certain amount of uh, anarchy, uh, and the Germans couldn't care less uh, what you did as long as you helped them out, people started to go after their enemies. Mm-hmm. The Ukrainians, for example, the Ukrainian uh, army uh, of uh, partisans, they went across the, across the river into Poland and raided villages and, and killed men, women, and children. Eyewitnesses said almost any day you could see a dozen dead bodies floating down the river. And we had the same thing happen in uh, Croatia, where Croatian Catholics went after Orthodox Serbs. And I hope you're s- sitting, Marshall. I'm sitting. Okay. Because they butchered three hundred and seventy five thousand orthodox serbians mm-hmm. that's the population of minneapolis yeah. and a brutal so this is what happened is all of these hatreds religious animosity grudges that go back centuries and centuries came before there was a lot of murdering going on during this period and not by the nazis mm-hmm it's a sad story. Anyway, we've we've totally run out of time, Richard. And I want to thank you very much for writing the book, and uh, I want to thank you for being on our show. But before I let you go, I want to ask our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, what are you working on now? Right now, I'm having fun. <laughs> I'm writing a book about jazz, from Nazis to jazz, quite a leap. Uh-huh. Uh, it's a story of a little-known uh, jazz drummer, the best drummer America has ever produced. His name is Chick Webb. He was Chick born Webb, and raised yeah. in Baltimore. His call to fame is that he uh, was dropped as a child. His growth was stunted, so he grew up to be four feet, one inches tall. He got tuberculosis of the spine, developed a hunchback. Mm-hmm. So you got a hunchback, four foot one, who normally would hide in a closet somewhere. He drummed himself out of Baltimore to New York into the Savoy Ballroom where he became the king. Yeah. So I want to tell you, we have a channel on the New Books Network, New Books and Jazz, believe it or not, and it's hosted by a terrific guy named Doc. I'll see you next year. And so absolutely, you should contact me and we'll get you in touch with, uh, with him and we'll have you uh, on New Books and Jazz. Yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's a pleasure to be able to combine 
my both of my loves, writing and music. Yeah, that's terrific. Well, anyway, we've been talking with uh, Richard Rashke about his book, Useful Enemies, John Demyanyuk and America's Open Door Policy for Nazi War Criminals. I want to say thanks for everyone to, uh, for listening to this interview. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I also want to thank uh, Richard for being on the show. Thanks, Richard. Well, thank you.